0: Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Matt, I'm one of the pastors at City Reform. We're glad to be with you today. We'll invite our young people to children's church. Their teachers are in the back, eager to receive them and meet with them. While they go, I'll quickly orient you to what we've been doing today on Easter Sunday. We're finishing a sermon series we've been doing in the Book of Revelation. And, uh, it's a, a, in many ways a fitting time for us to end because we see in this closing passage the way in which the the promise of the resurrection of Jesus is applied to the church. Before we read the text, I'll just do a quick reminder of the the events that surround uh, this Easter weekend and really the events that are central to the life of the church. Uh, Even someone who didn't know anything about Christianity would know that Christianity is related to the cross, the symbol of the cross is recognized throughout the world as representing Christian faith. On Friday our church gathered with many in the city and and uh, at the same time as others throughout the world to remember the crucifixion of Jesus the Christ. We gathered in uh, a local church at First Baptist with friends from other congregations and we read the accounts in the Bible of Jesus Christ giving himself in our place on the cross. It was a sober and somber evening. As, the, as the, uh, the, the readings progressed, we put out the candles and we concluded the service in darkness and in silence, remembering the gravity of the moment. And yesterday we waited. We waited as the first disciples did on that Saturday. And this morning we returned as the first disciples did uh, almost two millennia ago, we returned to gather together outside, and we read together the, the, the post-resurrection accounts in the Gospel of John. We read in those stories a reminder of how uh, Jesus showed himself to his disciples. Now, when we say that Jesus was raised from the dead, we recognize that that's not a common experience of people. In fact, it's a very unusual experience, When Jesus showed himself to his disciples, none of them were expecting it to happen. Now, students of the Bible would know they probably should have been. It had been foreshadowed in many ways, and Jesus himself had told his disciples many times he was going to be raised from the dead, but they didn't seem to have a category for it. It was an altogether new thing. In history, then, as today, sometimes people are resuscitated they, they, their heart may stop for a period of time and they, they go uh, for one way or another, they're, they're brought back either through CPR or electric shocks or the miraculous power of God. Some of them might be brought back to their body. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, the scriptures tell us that he went through death and came back as something different. He came back in upgraded form the text that we read today in, in our, our um, call to worship said that he is the first fruits, the first fruits of a resurrection that will happen for all people. When the disciples saw Jesus, they, they knew a couple of things were true. And in many ways, the New Testament, as we know it, is simply the apostles and the prophets thinking about the Bible, which was the Old Testament, through the lens of Jesus being raised from the dead. They said, we saw something we weren't expecting. We have to, we have a paradigm shift. And they looked back and they saw this is what God had been promising to do all along. When they saw the resurrection, they knew that the death of Jesus accomplished what he said it would do. They knew that it it worked. Like an amateur electrician, like, which is what I am, uh, trying to play around with the wires in the wall and you finally get it back together and you turn the power on, the light goes on. You know that it worked. It worked. On the resurrection, the apostles and prophets in the early church understood that Jesus did what he said he was doing on the cross. His death was paying for our sins. But the resurrection is also a promise that the power of God is working now in the world. When the apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, he said, I pray that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead would be at work among you. That power is active. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's he's ruling and reigning, and He has poured out His Spirit on the church. The final thing that is true about the resurrection, however, is the promise that Jesus will return and that all of the dead will be raised. In that sense, He is the first fruits. He is the, the first fruit to come of a harvest that will one day follow. Now, that extended uh, introduction ties together Easter with the passage we're looking at today. These four verses from the end of the book of Revelation focus particularly on that aspect. We are, as Christians, Easter people, people who stand in the light of the resurrection, but the, the resurrection of Jesus is for us behind us. It is an act of history, testified to by the apostles and prophets, by the witnesses of the early church, but we stand now looking forward to his return, and so the appropriate prayer for us on this Easter morning is to join with John, with the early church, and with God's people down through the ages saying, "'Come, Lord Jesus.'" We stand on the other side of the resurrection looking for his return. I'll read these four verses and together we'll affirm it as God's word. Revelation 22, verses 16 and 17, and verses 20 and 21. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the waters of life without price, let him come. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen this is the word of the lord be to God. what we read today are the final words of the bible the closing of the book um, the last book of revelation and in this closing section this second part of the final chapter jesus three times says behold i am coming soon he re- promises his return And in doing so, he challenges the church to live differently in light of his return. History is full of people promising to come back, and often these events make great impression on us. If you're an older generation, you would remember the famous words of General MacArthur during World War II where he had to leave the Philippines, but he promised the people there, we will return, I'll be back. Those of you of my generation, Gen Xers, remember the, perhaps the famous movie from the early 80s in which Arnold Schwarzenegger played an alien cyborg Terminator with an Austrian accent. After surveying a, a, police, a, a helpless police station, he, he exits promising, I'll be back. And people a little bit, a little bit younger, maybe remember in the early aughts, Uh, The classic uh, classic books by J.R.R. Tolkien were made into movies. In the second book, The the Two Towers, Gandalf the Wizard rides off to get reinforcements, and he promises on the fifth day, at daybreak, look to my coming. At dawn, look to the east. Those of you even younger who are sports fans... Uh, know that uh, sometimes good things do return. I don't know if Andrew McCutcheon uh, promised to return, but he is back. And strangely enough, the Pirates are winning. It is something of almost miraculous uh, nature for Pittsburgh sports fans. Jesus, in promising to return, challenges his people to live differently in light of his return. What's remarkable about this passage is That Jesus not only promises to return, but teaches us to pray for His return. Uh, Verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And then the invitation is given to all that are hearing the book. Let those who hear say, come. Uh, Closing uh, verse in verse 20 Jesus again testifies surely I am coming soon amen and then John responds with a prayer come Lord Jesus we have reason to believe that this is this prayer come Lord Jesus is one of the earliest prayers that the church would make in his first letter to the Corinthians the Apostle Paul has a point in, in one in uh, uh 1 Corinthians 16.22, in which he says this same prayer, come Lord Jesus. But rather than writing in Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, he actually writes it in Aramaic, which is the spoken language of the early church. And what we think that's telling us is that this was said so often that rather than translate it, they brought it in as a loan word. It was, it, we do that with familiar things something's very, very familiar, we stop translating the word and we start using it in the word of that, of that language, of that culture. If you went out today and you had a, 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 a you know, thin slice of, of bread that had been pounded down, covered with tomato sauce and cheese, you would probably just call it the Italian word, pizza, right? We take these loan words for for familiar, really, really uh, uh, famous things. And if you were traveling to another country, you'd probably be surprised some of the words in English that get used other places because they're so, they're so common and familiar. Well, we, we have reason to believe because of this, that when the early church gathered to pray, it would be a frequent prayer of theirs to say, Maranatha, which means it's Aramaic for, come Lord Jesus. In fact, one of the earliest texts we have, earliest documents outside the Bible, is called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, or the Didache, it may be written as early as the end of the first century, not long after the book of Revelation, perhaps. And in this, in their description of how the church would gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper and receive communion, they included this prayer as a part of their liturgical response, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. I just want to offer that prayer to you today. This is a, a uh, a simple message in many ways. But the closing of the Bible is an invitation to pray, Come, Lord Jesus. As we do that, we are being drawn into the history of the church. God's people, throughout places and throughout history, have prayed that simple prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, or maranatha but the interesting thing about the passage is that we see not only is the bride and the bride refers to the church the people of god not only is the bride praying come lord jesus but verse 17 says the spirit and the bride say come in this prayer we are drawn not only into the history of the church but we are drawn in a sense up into the inner workings of god himself god The three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons has conversation within himself. We see this often in the Bible. The deepest of all mysteries Christians could ponder. In saying this prayer, we are being drawn into the very conversation of God himself. So I just want to do two things today. First of all, we're going to ask the question, what does it mean when we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, And secondly, we'll see how does this change things when we pray? How does that prayer get answered? So first of all, what does it mean when we we pray, Come, Lord Jesus? In particular, what does it mean when Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon? There's two parts to this we could see, two parts to the meaning of what we're praying for. The first is a very central teaching in the New Testament. It's been a central theme of the book of Revelation, the book we've been studying for the last 50 days. We believe that at the end of history, Jesus will return, that he will return in bodily form. He's present now. The Spirit has been poured out on the church. But Christians believe that Jesus will return. Now, again, this isn't something uh, uh, that is necessarily natural for us to believe in. We're talking about the work of God in the world in a supernatural way. But in the book of Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is uh, taken away from earth, the way it's visualized by people is he goes up into the clouds, and and that's perhaps the only way Jesus could have communicated to them. He's going someplace else. He's not physically with them anymore, and he's not physically with us But as Jesus departed, angelic messengers said to the first, uh, uh, the early church, the gathering of the followers of Jesus, Jesus will return in the same way you saw him leave. That he will return visibly to be present among his people. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that we should set our hope firmly on the grace that will be ours when Christ appears. 1 John 3 verses 2 and 3 says, Beloved, We are God's children. We are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And we teach of the first fruit of the Spirit. We're saying one day those who are in Christ will become like Him, will share in His total physical renewal the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of all things. This teaching is found so often throughout the New Testament that it's summarized in the Apostles Creed. We'll read that after our service today. In the Apostles Creed, the church has been saying since the very beginning, we believe that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. It's a central belief, one of the most central beliefs in Christianity. We believe that when Jesus returns, he will restore all things and make all things new. The Future we most deeply long for will be brought about when Jesus returns. Christians believe one day there will be a utopia, a literal good place on earth, but it's the power of God that will bring it. One of the arguments we've made throughout the last couple of weeks, as we've read about this and uh, preached on it, moved through the book together, and in various readings in the life of the church, we've made the argument. That when people believe that Jesus brings the kingdom, it changes the way they relate to folks around them now. We can pray for it. We can long for it. We can look for it with hope. But we know that we do not bring the kingdom in our own power. The safest people to be around are those that know they can't fully bring the kingdom. You see the road to destruction, is really paved with good intentions. And some of the most harmful things ever done in history have been done by people who believed they were going to bring about ultimate paradise on earth. And every cost imaginable could be justified in that framework. When we pray, come, Lord Jesus, we look forward to His return. And we also are reminded we have a healthy restraint We know that we can't do it all ourselves, and we look for a power that is beyond us. Restraint causes us to be better neighbors. Hope causes us to remain faithful when it's hard. But the New Testament tells us, and the book of Revelation in particular surprisingly tells us, that the coming of Jesus is not exclusively wrapped up with His return at the end of all things. In fact, many of you may have not have noticed this if you were reading through the book of Revelation with us, but the book of Revelation itself is full of many promises of Jesus to come to be with His church that are not referring to the end. Early on in the book of Revelation, Jesus addressed seven churches in Asia Minor He challenged them and encouraged them and called them to greater faithfulness. Six times during the addresses to those churches, Jesus promised to come to them. On two of the occasions, he simply repeats the formula here, Behold, I am coming soon. And in the context, he makes it clear that he's calling them to hold on, to be steadfast, to remain faithful. Because he's coming back, they can endure difficult circumstances. But in three of the circumstances, Jesus warns them particularly that those who are professing faith in the church, but living like he doesn't matter, should be warned that he is close, he is at hand, and that he may have to show up personally to straighten things out. In fact, three of the times it comes out as a warning. He says to them, if if you don't stop doing what you're doing, I'm coming back To straighten you out. And the context is not the end of time. The implication is Jesus is going to show up to shepherd his church in the power of the Spirit. Discipline begins with the household of God, Peter told us in our our sermon series from last winter. Like a parent who's, some of you have done this, right? You've been driving. This is when you know you become your parents. You're driving in the car as a parent and there's noise in the back seat, and the noise gets dangerously loud, and then you find yourself saying, don't make me pull over and come back there. And you say, oh my goodness, i will become my parents. What's what's going on upstairs? Don't make me come up there. It's actually a sense of that in a healthy, redemptive way where Jesus says, I'm close, and I'm present in the power of the Spirit, and I may need to enter in and straighten things out. So turn turn it around, begin living as if I'm really alive and well. But the sixth and final time that Jesus uses the promise of coming to the seven churches is a very interesting one. It's to the the final church, the church of Laodicea. It's one of the two churches that has nothing good going for it. They become complacent in their faith. Their outward wealth and comfort masks an inward spiritual rot. Jesus says they are like lukewarm water, and he wants to spit them out of his mouth. He actually says that in the book. It's a little surprising. They're not useful to cool things off. They're not useful to heat things up. And so he challenges them. He shakes them up with his words, but in the end, he gives them this wonderful promise. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will come and hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. I will come into him. It's the same words used here. I will come into him and I will eat with him and he with me. Jesus promised to the church the the, the presence, the redemptive presence of himself and the power of the Holy Spirit. Both of these things are true. Jesus will return at the end of time to make all things new, but as we wait, he is present in the power of the Holy Spirit. He would say to the early church and to the the disciples, "If, if two or more of you are gathered in my name, I am there. And in his closing words in the Gospel of Matthew, as he sends the church out to the nations on their worldwide mission of witness, he said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. So when we pray, come Lord Jesus, are we praying for Jesus to be present now in redemptive ways, restoring us, correcting us, comforting us? Or are we praying that Jesus will return at the end and make all things new, bring the the final judgment and the restoration of all things? The answer is yes. Yes. We don't know the hour or the day, we don't dictate terms to Jesus, but when we pray as we're taught, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, we are entering into the divine story, we are entering into God's purposes, we are praying, Jesus, be with us and make your presence known. Come into my situation, come and do your work that I can't do on my own. And we also pray for the day in which all things will be made new, when death itself will be no more and all things will be restored. If that's what we're praying for, what happens when we pray? Well, the first and obvious thing is that God answers. It's one of the, the great mysteries of the Bible, we might say, the mystery of prayer. On one hand, God promises to do things. Jesus says repeatedly, I'll be back. And then he turns around and says, I want you to pray for the thing I'm going to do. And in some places, he goes so far as to say, right now, I'm not working in your presence because you're not praying. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask just for selfish purposes, not for my purposes. I'm paraphrasing here. God purposes through His sovereign, kingly power to work out His purposes and plans, but He also is determined to use the prayers of His people to do it. He's drawing us into the work, so that when He's answering prayer, it's really true that He is doing what we're asking Him to do. He's doing the thing that we're asking for. And so, when we pray, come, Lord Jesus, we expect Jesus to come, at one place in the New Testament actually says that in our, in our life and conduct, we are hastening the return of the Lord, the return, the, the date that's been set, that only God knows it's happening absolutely in His sovereign plan, and yet the scriptures could also say we are part of that process in some way. That's how our prayers work. It's also true that we look for Jesus to work powerfully in our midst now. We have problems and difficulties we can't face, uh, we can't uh, control on our own, we can't fix them on our own. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. In doing so, we're also reminded of our need. It's a passage about need, isn't it? Let the one who is thirsty Come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Do you notice the the flip of the image there? The Spirit says come. The bride says come. The prayer is come Lord Jesus. Jesus says I am coming. And then the invitation is those that are thirsty let them come. Are you thirsty? Yeah. spiritually thirsty. Maybe you're physically thirsty. We were a little late getting coffee here. The coffee machines are are broken. I had my coffee a little later than normal. I'm a little thirsty physically. I'm a lot thirsty spiritually. In fact, to be human is to be thirsty. I was watching an online interview recently. A famous actor named Rob Lowe was describing his descent into drugs and addiction in his recovery. He was asked by an interviewer, why is it you think so many famous people in Hollywood and in entertainment, why is it that they get so drawn into various forms of addiction? And he answered very quickly. He said, I can tell you, we are born thirsty. I'm paraphrasing just a little bit here. That was the idea. We are born with a hunger that we cannot satisfy, and when you get money and power and wealth, you think you have all the means to make yourself happy. For a period of time, perhaps, the illusion of happiness and filling comes through the uh, addictive use of drugs and alcohol, but it comes at a cost, and it comes not bearing life but bringing death. In that little story, in that little interview, is a window into the human condition. To be human is to be thirsty. And we will take and grab the things around us to fulfill the desires of our hearts. Like drinking salt water, they only make the desire deeper. Jesus says, I come with eternal life, I come with streams of living water. If you're thirsty, come and drink. In the resurrection of Jesus, we're told that death is defeated, the barrier of our sin is removed. The redemptive purposes of God that will renew the whole world are beginning now. Jesus introduced himself here as the The morning star, did you see that text? I am the root descendant of David, I am the bright morning star. In the resurrection of Jesus, we see the light that shines while it's still night, but the dawn is coming. I read online yesterday that the morning star isn't actually a star, but most often refers to one of the planets, I believe most often Venus. And in the interesting nature of things, it shines the brightest right before the daylight comes. In the darkness, in the dark of night, when you wouldn't perhaps otherwise know if you didn't have a watch or a smartphone. In those moments when the light is right around the corner, the morning star is visible. That's what Jesus says He offers to us in His resurrection and the power of the Spirit. He is among us. He is the the star that's shining before the full renewal of morning comes. What happens when we pray? First of all, God answers. Secondly, we are changed in how we think about ourselves. We we embrace our need and our inability and we see God's power. Finally, as we pray this way, we are stirred to action. That's what we are called to, really. In all of these promises where Jesus says, I am coming soon, the thing that comes along with it is not only a prayer, but a call to faithfulness, to live as if He is returning. I was uh, mentioned earlier the Lord of the Rings, the movie The Two Towers. I was reminded of a scene from that movie in which Gandalf not only promises re- his return, but comes. In their hour of greatest need. I posted this on our blog yesterday. If you've not seen this clip before, you can find it on our website, and it's really worth watching. I rewatched it for maybe the 10th time the other day and found that I still loved it as much as I did before. What I had forgotten, though, not having seen the movie all that recently, what I had forgotten is just how desperate the moment was. Uh, the story is telling the story of a, uh, a, a nomadic people, that, I guess they're not they're, they're people with horses. Um, uh, I know we have Tolkien fans here. I have to be very careful of everything I say in these analogies They 've retreated to Helms Deep, the mountain fortress. The orcs have not only broken down the barriers, they're breaking down the doors. And as I watched this clip, I was reminded of how desperate this situation was. The king, Theoden, is beginning to return to despair. He feels all has been lost. The doors are barely holding. The enemy is at the gates. It appears as if there's no other hope. His friend, the true high king of the realm, Aragorn, looks at him and says, Ride out with me. If we're going to go down, he says. Let's, let's go down the way we're called to, to do it. Let's, let's not give up, but let's let's ride out to face the enemy one more time and maybe we'll save some of these people. And as, as they are stirred to action, Aragorn remembers the promise of Gandalf, behold, I'm coming. He said, look, on the fifth day, look to the east at dawn, I'll be there. If you see the scene of, of Gandalf's return and you know that J.R.R. R. Tolkien was a committed Christian, and it certainly, in my mind, looks like the image of Revelation 19, the rider in white coming to lead the victorious armies. And it probably was something stirring in the back, in the back of the mind of, of Tolkien as he wrote that and in the movies as they were made. What struck me most in watching that scene is that their call to action was taken when There was no visible sign of their victory. Ride out with me, he says. The promise is there, the promise of return, of a power, of reinforcements. It's it's over the hill, beyond their sight. And so in faith, they ride out. I thought it was a really stirring image to re-watch. And I was uh, turning it over in my head the other day. I thought, you know, our, our situation maybe often feels similar. We live now in the darkness of night, in a fallen world. Sin still present in our own lives, brokenness in relationships around us. Our lives are plagued by physical health problems, mental health problems. We live in a broken world, we have spiritual enemies, we scarcely understand our relationships are broken, and the the shadow of death hangs over all of us. We come to Easter morning as a people acquainted with death and brokenness and sin. We live in a world that frequently is just plain run out of hope. Perhaps in your life this morning, you feel something like those in the story I was telling. The doors are beginning to break. The forces of darkness seem to be just about to break in. The dawn has not yet come, and all you have is a promise. This prayer is for you. Come, Lord Jesus. It's a prayer of those who know they can't fix it on their own. It's a prayer of people who are painfully acquainted with their own helplessness. It's a prayer that accompanies faithful action, even when we don't know how the action will work. Ride out with me. Step out in faith. As we pray together, come Lord Jesus looking for His return to set all things new, but looking for His power even now to be manifest in His church in the midst of our weakness. I'd like to invite those helping with worship to come forward as we close out this section. Friends, I'm going to ask that you join with me just in quiet prayer as I close. The closing verse, verse 20 and 21. Surely I am coming. Amen. And then John rehearses the prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Surely I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to make that a prayer. I'm going to pause silently. Would you join me? And perhaps as you are praying, come, Lord Jesus, in the quiet of your own heart, you can be thinking of a a particular thing in your life a problem that seems insurmountable, a difficulty you cannot overcome on your own. Come, Lord Jesus. Or maybe for you this morning, you're acquainted with your thirst. Maybe this would be the first time that you would pray that way, and ironically, in your prayer, you yourself are coming to the one who gives life, life The water of life without price is available for all who know their thirst and will look to Jesus in faith. Let's pray together.